This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Failure. Chances are you've experienced it at some point in your life, if not many points. Failure is heartbreaking and more often than not, the fear of failure can prevent you from pursuing your dreams or trying new things. But what exactly is failure? What can it teach us? And more importantly, does our understanding of failure focus too much on individuals rather than society? I'm Dashan Johan and this is Today I Learned. On the show with me today is Dr. Eugene T, Associate Professor in Psychology. Welcome to the show, Eugene. Happy New Year. How are you? Very well, Dashwan. Thank you for having me and Happy New Year. You know, the anatomy of failure, Eugene, is a topic you're passionate about. It's something you've written about as well. But let's start with this. What does failure mean exactly? How would you define it? You know, just to kick things off, a definition is always useful. I think failure is, well, at least to me and from my reading of the literature, any attempt at meeting a certain target or trying to attain, right? Any attempts made towards attaining a certain standard of achievement that either falls short of our own or some externally set standard. So these are, in my view, the, these are setbacks, right? I think that's just a way of reframing and understanding failure. Uh, we're often told that we don't make the cut, we, we don't qualify, or we don't measure up in some way. So that would be, to me, uh, my understanding of the term failure as used in this context. Right. You brought up something interesting. You said, you know, we are often told that we don't measure up. So then my next question, I wonder, is should success and, and subsequently failures be seen through an individual or personal lens or relative to others' lens? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. Uh, it's also fascinating, right, that you picked up on that. So I, th- I think this uh, harks by a little bit to the conversation that we had before. Uh, you mentioned success, failures, almost two sides of the same coin. Uh, because I think we seem to have both an objective and a subjective view of what we call success. And by the same measure, I think uh, this applies for failures as well. Um, the most, I think, commonly quoted view of, of failure as just a setback, but a temporary one, um, en route, say, to success. I, I think one that uh, it's a quote, right, that many of our listeners will be familiar to. I didn't fail. I just found a thousand ways that didn't work. Right. So, <laughs> so unfortunately, unfortunately, I think what happens is, you know, in this, this is, I, I would think it's a false dichotomy between individual personal lens versus relative to others. I think we draw from both. That being said, I think we tend to equate failures and, and success to relative lens. So how we define failures like success, right, is often shaped by some external standard um, of comparison that sometimes means perhaps little, right, uh, personally to us at least. So just to give an example, so even in, in, in studies of career success, researchers make the clear distinction between what they call objective career success and subjective career success, right? right? You, you might have, say, for instance, right, just to make more tangible this example, you might have a mediocrely successful professional career, you might consider yourself a failure, but really, does that really matter? Does that mean that you really are a failure if you say you anchor your success based on, say, having solid, close, healthy relationships with your family right. and your children. So I think like success, right, the way in which we define failures as well, I think a lot of it is is shaped by, you know, something that's relative, something outside of ourselves, by culture, by organizations, uh, by, by someone else, right? 
a, a close non-supportive partner, a lot of external factors, a lot of external standards dictate whether we have succeeded or in this case failed. So what do we experience emotionally and mentally when we experience failure? Mm. So I, I think failure comes with a host of emotions. So I would uh, stand by the claim based on what I've written in that in that article. So I've just walked you through just you know feel those emotions, uh, shame for one, right? right? The feeling that one has fallen short of one's uh, personal standards. Then there's guilt, uh, shame, and guilt are what we call self-conscious emotions, right? It causes us to evaluate ourselves in a certain way, often not in a good way, right? So guilt, uh, the feeling that you have harmed another person, another individual, you've, you've damaged a relationship, uh, then there is disappointment and regrets, right? Emotions that are typically associated with decision making, right? So regret here being a little bit more confronting than disappointment, because it involves a greater sense of personal agency that you were the architect, right? And the person responsible for your own misdeeds and failures. So um, just again, off the top of my head, you're more likely to, to feel regretful making a career change if right. it doesn't work out, right? Then say, if a new project landed on your portfolio and didn't work out because of external uncontrollable factors. And, and just to add on to the the emotions that we feel, and that's um, sadness, right? How could I forget sadness? Right. Anger, self-anger specifically, right? right? You berate yourself, right, for falling short of yours or others' expectations. So uh, as I wrote the article, a while back, I still believe that the first step in, um, you know, I would think just cultivating that resilience, that tenacity towards failure is to identify, um, untangle and to unpack, I should say, I like the word unpack, because it's a string of emotions, right? right? Bundle rather, and you want to see the threads leading to to your failure experience. So I think unpacking emotions as we feel as a result from failure is the essential first step as we as we grapple with a failure incident, then and only then, I think um, we can decide what understandings or even lessons that we want to draw from them uh, towards cultivating our resilience. Why is this an important first step, that that realization, that self-awareness? Why is mm. it important? So I think really it's the process of really coming to terms with an understanding because emotions are information. There are signals to right. us that tell us that something has happened uh, the emotions have have arisen due to some feature of the environment of the situation. But what are they trying to tell you? If you were to unpack them, I think you start to see certain themes, certain lessons even, right? That come maybe a little bit later. It, it's sobering and that realization is not evidently clear to you at the moment in which that failure incident is experienced. But through reflection and that cultivation of self-awareness of what these emotions are trying to tell you, I think those are important, Dashran first steps right towards understanding okay something has happened this is not a good situation to be in i failed i messed up i screwed up in some way some shape or form and i'm feeling this this barrage this this firestorm of emotions what are they trying to tell me why am i experiencing all of that it's not gonna you know uh be something that you realize just overnight some people lose sleep over this i know i have mm -hmm. uh so having having a thing try i find journaling to be incredibly helpful for you know for helping in the process of untangling or you know disentangling unpacking the thread of what each emotion is trying to tell me so maybe if you imagine like a, a ball of um, string right 
and the string comprises, and then the ball of, of yarn or string comprises multiple different colors. They're all tangled up, kind of like, you know, the 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 torturous experience of untangling your Christmas lights, for instance. Right. right. And you actually want to say, okay, so this is the blue thread, this is the sadness thread, this is the anger thread, this is the the um the disappointment thread, right? And, and so coming to terms with your emotions, right? Uh, and helping you understand, helping you unpack all of them. I, I think that's one way to us, you know, just, just drawing from the lessons of what our emotions are trying to tell us. So once we have already understood our emotions, we have reflected, we have unpacked, what can or what does failure teach us? I, it's a great follow-up question, isn't it? Because you, you only go so far as, as saying that, look, I'm now self-aware, a little bit more self-aware at least, a little bit more aware uh, of why I'm feeling the things that I do. So I think I think the key here, Ashwin, is what we then do upon the reflection of these failures. That's crucial. How we make sense of it all, however hard that is, that that's essential. Um, I stress and I, I share this oftentimes, right? Um, it's not the experience that teaches us. It's the reflecting on and then subsequently the, the, the sense making, right? From the reflections of the experience that either help or hinder our development. Right. And, and so I was actually reading, I've been reading up recently on a concept called uh, one's narrative identity. Okay. As well as some research by psychologists, um, Ethan Cross, on your inner voice. So there's this excellent book called Chatter and the stories that we tell ourselves, the inner voice that we listen to, right? That can really subsequently shape our outlook and our approach to life. So um, in, in terms of identity, just to think there is something called uh, a redemptive identity. So okay. failures, mistakes, setbacks, traumas, give us pause, but they also open up possibilities and you know opportunities that can lead one towards a redemptive self, right? Redeeming oneself, growing from failure. I think some psychologists would recognize this as some form or related to post-traumatic growth, that people become stronger, people become, you know, they reinvent, they reorient themselves. Uh, But, but, you know, we we also need to factor in that sometimes this does not play out the way that people want or they hope to. For that reason, there's also, in contrast with the redemptive identity, there's also a contamination uh, identity. So that's transitioning into a negative state marked by denial, dis- uh, disillusionment, right, or withdrawal. Um, I, I, I think it's almost, right, uh, try to say that failures are teachers, but I think there is truth in that, but only insofar as, you know, the extent to which we choose to make sense of, to sort of re re birth ourselves even, right, from from that failure experience. So this this idea of identity and the inner voice, I, I find that to be interesting. And that certainly moves beyond uh, what I initially wrote about in terms of uh, emotions and failure. Before we talk about resilience, Eugene, I also want to ask why we often avoid speaking about our mistakes or our failures, um, why we feel embarrassed by it, um, even if it's to our own friends, family members, colleagues, um, And just to add another layer to that question, I'm wondering why we're embarrassed about some failings more than others. For example, in high school, if I got a C for math or D for physics, I would just tell people or even if people talked about it behind my back and I found out, it wouldn't make me feel ashamed. But if I got even a low A for English or or Sajara, I would feel embarrassed to tell people about it. 
I, it's a very good observation, Dasha, and that is a full mark for self-reflection. <laughs> and, 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 you know, um, I, I hope I'm not mistaken in labeling the term here, but you're absolutely right when, you know, you say that this is this is something that I strongly identify with. I see myself as maybe not so good in math, right, but I'm really good in English, right? And so when I, uh, you know, take a test, an English test, and it doesn't, the, the, the grades or the marks don't add up. It really affects me to the core because I identify a lot more strongly with that. I see myself as a competent right. user of the English language. And when the test results, you know, tell me otherwise, there's a stronger dissonance to be felt, isn't it? Because you identify a lot more strongly. So I think something to do with self-concept. I, I think if you dig into this concept a little bit more, this this idea that uh, you identify strongly with certain skills, traits, characteristics, abilities, in this case, in this instance, Zashran, it's your command of the English language. And when someone tells you otherwise, hey, you're not as good as you think you are, right, that affects us to our, right. our core a lot more strongly. Uh, it, it, you know, I, I don't consider myself good in math either. So uh, if I don't do that well in my math exams, oh, you know, it's kind of be expected. It's kind of expected because I'm not a math person. I'm not a numbers person, right? So it doesn't affect me uh, that, that, that badly. So I would say the identification or the sort of connection that you have with certain, you know, skills, abilities, traits, uh, if I, I think this goes beyond abilities as well, if you think of yourself as, look, I, I think I'm a fairly generous person, but then one of your close friends comes out and tells you that, hey, you know, he, Dasha never picks up the tap, right? Uh, Eugene always seems to conveniently excuse himself to the washroom just before the bill is called, right? So I say, hey, come on, hang on a minute, right? So, so that really so, so the connection, I would say, right. just to find the answer, yeah. On the show with me today is Dr. Eugene T, Associate Professor in Psychology. After the break, I ask him why, when discussing failure, the focus is more often than not on individuals rather than society. Keep it here on Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Today I Learned. I'm Dashran Johan and on the show with me today is Dr. Eugene T, Associate Professor in Psychology and we're dissecting the anatomy of failure. So Eugene, what do resilient individuals do differently in the face of failures um, and, and such distressing emotions compared to those of us who are perhaps less resilient? So in terms of resilience, there's a great reference that answers this exact question as in what do resilient individuals do differently? Uh, it's a book on resilience by Karen Rybich and Andrew Shatter. And, and these authors are suggesting primarily it's, you know, one of the things that we resilient people do differently is how they think about failures, right? Uh, so one suggestion then from them right, is that, well, resilient people avoid common thinking traps that diminish their resilience. So it's very easy to catastrophize saying like, oh, that's it. Uh, you know, I've, I've messed up on my English exam. I'm never going to get into college, right? Uh, and, and so the one one example, for instance, is that we personalize our failures. We, we, we think, for instance, that's all because of something that we, we said, didn't say, did, didn't do. I didn't study hard enough for the test, right? Uh, oh, you know what? I, I've overestimated my abilities. When it could very well be the case that if you if you consider um, your 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 cohort members, your your friends' performance, that it was a really tough paper. What it, it was a really tough exam, isn't it? And you know the the average was a little bit lower than you know even the teacher expected. So I think we we think we are the ones solely to blame for our circumstances and 
and, and, and miseries when there could be a host of other unseen, uncontrollable factors that lead to failure. Uh, we might also, I think this is another thinking trap, um, overgeneralize. We say that, I think I mentioned just, just a while ago, oh, I failed in my exam, that's it, I'm going to mess up my career, I'm never right. going to get a good job, my life is over. Right? Uh, so, so failing to secure, say, just in a, another example I've heard recently, uh, failing to secure a lucrative contract with a uh, with a client, for instance, right, it's, it's damning judgment that you aren't a good provider for your family. So it, it sort of infects other areas of, of your life. When in fact, that's not true, right? Failures thing, no doubt about it. But it, it's really how, you know, and, and it's the case for resilient individuals, how they reappraise, how they rethink, how they interpret that setbacks, right? That determines whether they can leverage on their strengths, positive emotions, right? Uh, that sees them through the setback that you know, they've experienced. Of course, um, caveat right here, Dashran, it's not about giving yourself license to commit future errors or mistakes. It's not giving you a free pass, right? But sometimes I think, you know, it, it's it's necessary to just pause, to rethink, right? It's a difficult lesson about what you could have done better and what you might want to seriously consider doing better for yourself, right? When you're met with failures in the future. Can you expand a little bit on, on the positive emotions that resilient people experience um, in the face of failure? Because um, it's, it's a little bit strange, right, when we think about it. Is it, is it a matter of, you know, when, you know, let's say the average Joe, um, you know, they, get, they fail their exams or they do badly in their, in their career, even their job evaluation or appraisals, um, and, and they, they feel this deep shame, guilt, so on and so forth. Are resilient people when they get, an, let's say, an appraisal and the boss said, okay, this year you didn't perform as well as you could have. These are your, your failings and, and your pitfalls and, and so on and so forth. Do they go like, yes, like, oh, this is amazing. I have a lot to learn, you know, or, or something. What are these positive emotions? How are they interpreting the situation differently? Certainly, it's not easy to just, like you said, Ashran, right? When you get a bad performance appraiser and someone says, hey, you know what? This is an excellent learning opportunity. Let's right. not ourselves here. Let's really not fool ourselves. <laughs> I'm going to slather positive emotions over my terrible experience and say, yeah, it's all fine and hunky-dory, right? right. No, it's not, right? So I, I would think, you know, take that step by step. I think, uh, firstly, ex acknowledging that you are feeling that that pain, that setback, that misery, that it is... It is your negative emotions telling you about the circumstances that you're in, this unpleasant circumstances that you are in, right? So I'm not going to gloss over by saying that, you know, you're just going to slap on positive emotions and then things will be fine. I think you need to first be aware of, reflect on, maybe even to some extent, uh, accept and be mindful of the negative emotions that you are facing. No one's asking you to get over this in a day, sometimes even a week, right? And for more severe traumatic cases, so even, even months on end. But once individuals are ready to, what the research does tell us is that they bolster their recovery through the use of positive emotions. And this can include self-compassion, right? Recognizing that, you know what? People have gone through setbacks, failures, um, uh, negative performance appraisals, failed bids, right, or you've, you've lost a client, for instance, self-compassion being a combination of the understanding that people have gone through this. You are not alone. You may seem that you are alone, but people have gone through this. It's treating yourself with kindness, right? It's taking that one small step forward. I got out of bed today and I managed to, 
you know, hop on back into my email. I got a few things done. I didn't feel productive after lunch, but that's okay. I got something, right? So, so recognizing that small steps forward in that recovery are still steps forward, right? They may not be your typical day, uh, which you felt 101% productive, but still those were steps forward that say, hey, you know what? You were in a rut, right? For a couple of weeks, months, right? But you're slowly taking those steps forward for yourself. Um, another positive emotion that has been shown to be a a, a benefit uh, for helping individuals through difficult times is hope. And we're not talking about, you know, blind hopefulness here, right? Hope in its uh, scientific, uh, empirically validated sense is this idea that I have the will and I have the way to overcome these difficult circumstances. The, the wills and the ways may not be present to you at the very start, right? Upon that initial setback, which is why, you know, depression is often associated with the sense of hopelessness. I am trapped. I have no way out of this. I have no energy to get out of this situation, right? right? But that cultivation of hope and the interesting thing about hope is, Dashran, is that it emerges from when we are at, many times we find that it emerges at times in which we are at our lowest, when we have hit rock bottom. So if I look up, right? out from this deep hole that I'm in, do I see a way out? And can I muster up the courage, the motivation to actually make use of the steps leading out of this dark hole that I'm in? So cultivating hopefulness, right? I, I think that's another way uh, in addition to self-compassion uh, by which resilient individuals dig themselves out of the the, the the psychological black hole that they might find themselves in. Right. So the question then is, how do we get there? Because like you said, this is not necessarily something you can, you know, you don't listen to this podcast and then tomorrow you become resilient, no, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's a process. But yeah. wh what can people think about? Um, could you share some tips on how we can take the steps to become more resilient through our failings? So well, acknowledging your thinking traps is one. I'm going to start off by, you know, just maybe a bit of a recap based on the overgeneralization right. and, you know, the 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 you know deeply personalized um, thoughts that go through your mind when you you know just single yourself out um, as you know, you're the judge jury and executioner of your own misery right uh, so I think uh, just to expand on that I think uh, what what the what the book I was recommending um, you know uh, what Ravish and Shatter the authors were recommending is to identify what they call your iceberg beliefs. And this might be relevant to you, Adashan, right? When you're talking about the English exam. So these are deep beliefs about yourself that challenge your, your adaptability. So right. I, I should always be good in English, right? Uh, I should always be seen as successful. For one, that's, that isn't helpful. That doesn't breed resilience or adaptability. Setbacks and failures are definitely things that we're going to experience over the course of our lives, right? And to hold on so strongly to say, I should always be successful. I should always be perfect, I should always, you know, present myself in the most positive, uh, favorable light in the eyes of us. The moment you hit a bump in the road, that is going to send strong shocks to the identity, right? The core of who we are, right? Another example just, just crossed my mind. I, I should always be a loving, patient parent. That's another right. example of an iceberg belief, right? right. It's You're likely going to be less resilient and harder on yourself when you inevitably lose your temper with your partner, right? Or with your child. Uh, so that's first, identifying your iceberg beliefs. Second, you can also engage in um, what we call benefit finding. Right. And this might come a little bit later down the road, right? Is there something to be gained uh, even from this setback? Say, 
um, you deal with a difficult client, right? It's unpleasant, it's either toxic or corrosive. What did you learn from it? Perhaps, you know, skills in, in better being able to deal with and to manage um, difficult relationships. Um, I'm going to put a plug in here just very quickly, Dashan, for uh, a favorite of mine from Positive Psychology. Right. And that is to learn optimism. And, and we're not talking about the blind, you know, Pollyanna, unjustified optimism mm -hmm. that renders us naive and and, and blind, right, to, to further failures. But I, I think what goes on in the minds of people who have learned to be optimistic is that they've explained their setbacks in healthier ways. So first, consider the 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 temporality of the setback. Ask yourself, and I'd like to get, you know, maybe you and our listeners to think about, is this something that is permanently problematic or temporarily troublesome? Right. right? Second, is it pervasive? Is it just one domain in your life or is it everything? The, the, you know, everything. Does professional failure equate to personal failure? Many times, no, right? You got to draw that distinction between the two. I know we identify so strongly with our personal identities and as, and also our professional identities right. that is bleed into one there is a porous layer in between both identities that we find difficult to separate right so so maybe drawing distinction drawing that that line would be helpful and third is it personal or is it situational was it really you know the setback caused by something that that's uncontrollable right so so challenging these unhelpful beliefs, think it's all because of you, it, it's permanent, it's pervasive. Uh, these are, you know, just, just to tweak your explanatory style, uh, that can go some ways towards helping us cultivate resilience. Right. Um, you know, I want to go back to the, the example I gave about the English um, thing, right? Because uh, I just thought of something. I'm wondering if oftentimes, right, in those situations, mm -hmm. do we feel this, this deep shame, guilt, um, and so on and so forth, because we are passionate in, let's say, a particular thing. Like, am I Absolutely. passionate in English, or is mm -hmm. it because we have positioned ourselves um, in the uh, in the in in society, in, in our family, in among our peers, as someone who is good in English mm -hmm. and someone who um, rightfully should like this is your area of expertise. So you may yeah. be terrible and everything else, but this mm -hmm. is the the thing that people go to you about. Mm -hmm. It's the same as you know, um, I'm a movie buff. Sometimes when my friends ask me something about a movie and you know I, I haven't watched it, perhaps there is this thing inside me that prompts me sometimes to just tell them that I already watched it, perhaps yeah, like a spontaneous lie. Um, <laughs> um, be, just for this particular subject matter, not for every, everything else. You know, why does that happen? Well, Dashan, right, I, I'm the English person, I'm the movie person. So <laughs> you're right in saying it's not just, and I, I think there's an um, interaction here almost between what we are passionate in and mm -hmm. what we are what, what we are interested in. Isn't right. it? So I almost picked up like two themes and our interests and our passions certainly shape a large extent to who we are and how we see ourselves. More importantly, um, uh, to that point as well, you were saying that this is how we project ourselves in the right. eyes of others, isn't it? So there must be some kind of synchrony or harmony in between who I see myself to be and who I and I project myself to be. And, and 
And, you know, any time that that is threatened or that is challenged, right, it causes us to think a little bit more, hey, did I get this wrong about myself? Are other people seeing things about me that I'm not completely aware of, right? Or are they spotting or are they highlighting my blind spot? Maybe I'm not quite as good as as I think I was, right? And and I think the expectation there, right, like you said, you are the English person, your family recognizes you, okay, right? English person, we, we get in touch with Dashrunner if we have you know, a, a, a speech to proofread or we have, uh, you know, I, I don't know what they, you know, uh, ask you for. Right. <laughs> you know, anything that requires right. your expertise and skill in the English language, they're going to go to you. And not being able to meet those expectations is going to get you to think, second guess, doubt, right, yourself. And that's not a situation that a lot of people find themselves comfortable to be in. Uh, and, and maybe just to, you know, I, I think this is a fascinating conversation, right, about your interests and your passions and how these two mutually interact in shaping yourself, right, your identity as right. an individual. When that is challenged, I, I, I don't think it's just affecting us at the surface level. It affects us something a little bit more deeper, uh, the core of who we are, how we are seen by others, and importantly as well, right, how we see ourselves. I want to shift the conversation to something a little bit broader, um, something mm-hmm. perhaps even more philosophical than, than it already is right now. And mm-hmm. that is that oftentimes when we discuss failure, um, the suggestion is to look at other success stories, right? And, and learn from their resilience. So in your article, you brought up a few very good examples. For example, uh, you brought up J.K. Rowling, found success with Harry Potter after her stories were rejected by no less than nine different publishers. Um, Steve Jobs was asked to leave Apple by the board of directors in 1985. This is the very company whose fortunes he would dramatically reverse upon his return in 1997. But I'm wondering, Eugene, perhaps we don't uh, focus enough, especially when you look at the field of psychology and and so on and Mm -hmm. so forth, about how these are just, these examples are just exceptions to the rule. Focusing Mm -hmm. on how a few people found success in the current system, I'm wondering if we can detract or distract people from the fact that the system itself isn't built for the masses to succeed and mm-hmm. that for most people regardless of how hard they work and how resilient they are will never ever become the next rich person for example and the, and the case mm-hmm. in point is the most hardworking people you know when we look around us uh, the most resilient people are for example migrant workers who work two jobs a day to put food on the table while raising a family while taking care of their sick parents back in their hometown in another country while facing xenophobia so on and so forth mm-hmm. while having to run away from the police sometimes you know all mm-hmm. these kinds of things what are your thoughts on this Wow, when you mentioned philosophical dashran, you're not kidding. <laughs> I I will start by just saying two simple words. I concur, right? And I acknowledge that we all love a good, inspiring success story, but you are spot on, you know, in saying that for every remarkable story of success in any field, there are uncountable others that have um, been instead. Uh, you know, individuals and institutions who have met with failure instead. So your perspective on this, Ashwin, I would say is a necessary and it's a sobering uh, corrective to what we often see being reported and celebrated in society for every successful person, organization, business um, that leads to household recognition, maybe even a book deal, right, detailing the secrets of their success. You get a throng of others who didn't quite 
make it, who didn't make the cut. So just do a search for, you know, just as I, I was just in the lead up to our conversation today, the percentage of startups that fail and you get anywhere within a range of 70 to 90% successes, mm-hmm. not the norm we like to think that it is, right? And we'd like to think that through our hard work, our talent, our grit, and all the other positive qualities our mothers and friends tell us that when we are able to succeed, success will indeed be ours. And you're absolutely right and spot on, um, sobering, right? When saying that institutional, circumstantial, environmental, contextual, right down to situational, right? Moment to moment factors can all limit our chances of success. Uh, I, I think I, I think that's an assumption or one that has gone unchallenged is that the fundamental um, element or the agent for success is the individual right. rather than the environment or the context. And I think if you, you know, uh, just, just back that up with some of our innate beliefs, right? I'm, I'm just only reminded of just world beliefs, right? We, we expect fairness. We are fairness seeking. We are fairness emphasizing. We love the idea that some people who do good will be rewarded. We love the idea that people who do bad will get their comeuppance, right? But unfortunately, the world does not work that way. At best, the world is indifferent, right? So if someone succeeds or fails, then we automatically assume it's the product of their own merits, not because of the circumstances that they're born in. So I would agree with you. I would just want to draw this back to the field of psychology, which, uh, you know, the field I spent most of my professional career in, uh, there are even limitations, right? So maybe even at its fundamental base level, our understanding of factors leading to success and well-being is also limited. So if you notice, psychology has a, a somewhat considerable problem with the self. Right. <laughs> controversial, controversial. I invite maybe any of our listeners to chime in on this. But much of our focus, if you think about it, has been about, well, the individual. Right? You look at the constructs that they look at, self-esteem, right. self-concept. We're talking about self-awareness This you right. know, for the bulk of our conversation yep. today self-efficacy, self-compassion, right? All well and truly good, Dashran. But confining research and suggestions for success and well-being to just the self really overlooks the fact that we are agents operating within a larger sphere of our environments, right? If you want to ask people what definitions of, you know, success are in their culture, and then you narrow it down, right, Dashran? If you ask people what their culture is, it's kind of like asking a fish, How's the water today? <laughs> subtle influence, right? We, right? we are shaped so much by subtle forces in our environment that we are not necessarily cognizant or consciously aware of. So there are indeed, right, to be fair, in all honesty, models to account for the environment. Uh, but it really, I think the key here is in the understanding of that, that interaction, is it? that intertwining of the person and the environment that leads to success or otherwise, uh, that we need to pay more attention to. So I think well-being, opportunities for success, right? They're, they're, as you've correctly identified, it's unfairly, um, you know, not necessarily available to all. I, I think that's just you know, the world that we we currently reside in. Absolutely, right? Because, you know, I, I guess just to, to clarify also, I, I, get, I ask this question, not because, you know, I don't want people to work on becoming more resilient, right? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I'm merely wondering why when discussing the anatomy of failure, the focus mm-hmm. is more often on individual failures yeah. in a society that is supposedly, or, or, you know, structured or functioning normally. That's the, like you brought up that very good point, right? People just assume that, you know, this is just how it is. Mm-hmm. And and so whether you fail or success, it's your own 
doing instead of how you know in reality society and economy in and of itself how it's structured by the elites so that only the elites and perhaps a fractional few can succeed while the rest will have little to no room for realistic upward mobility how do you process this eugene especially when there are some studies that show that you can predict how rich or poor most people are going to be um, when they're 30, 40, 50 years old just by looking at which district they are born in. In in other words, because of how our system is structured, most people are doomed to fail from the moment they are born regardless of, you know, what they do to try and change that. Oh, it's a prickly, prickly question, Dashran. Uh, you subject me to this. <laughs> I, know, I think that's a great uh, point, though, uh, and and I think we'll need to involve maybe a philosopher in right, this. Right. Uh, but I think understanding that there are limits to, you know, what we define as success. I, this is not a matter of just shifting the goalposts in, but right. a, a much more thoughtful recognition that the circumstances that we belong to limit the amount of opportunities that we can sometimes get for for accomplishing success and and attaining professional. Uh, you know, recognition. So, so I'll give an example, and maybe this is just my own, you know, self-criticism of my own abilities as as a researcher or as, or as a scientist. But certainly, opportunities for um, attaining research grants, publications—that's certainly going to be a lot more, um, you know, available, made available to me outside of this context. I think that's something about the narrative of psychology, for instance, that is predominantly still dominated by, you know, a more Western perspective on things. It's starting to change, but you know the the the, the major uh, player in psychological research is still very much outside of Asia, isn't it? So right. I think opportunities for advancement, what they will count as success, reside uh, or are much more afforded to you outside of this context. Now, if you bring that back to you know a systems of governance, and again, this is me really at the sort of like the the, the boundaries of what I do know, but but recognizing that institutionally. You know, uh, that there's political uh, sort of like barriers or boundaries that inhibit or limit, for instance. Uh, we, we talked a little bit, I think, briefly on the distribution of wealth, isn't it? So the fact that there's very limited social mobility in society might be partly due to the fact of something, some feature in the governance that does not redistribute the wealth of the country, which is why we find in psychological research, high power distance countries tend to report, or citizens in high power distance countries tend to report lower levels of satisfaction. Uh, right. They also don't get a lot of, you know, mobility, right? So, it, you know, if you think the American dream is is just an illusion, right? A dream <laughs> that's never going to be fulfilled. It's going to be, it's actually more reality in some other institutions, in right. some other countries because of the way in which those countries are governed. I'm not going to give specific examples, but already I think you listeners will probably have in mind, say, huh, that reminds me of a certain country, right? You might have different, but but you do recognize that, and, and this is you as a fish recognizing that the the temperature of the water is not as cold, is not as warm as it could be for your well being and for your chances of success. And I think that is that is crucial. What we can do about it, though, systemic issues, right? Addressing mm -hmm. systemic institutional, uh, um, you know, limitations and 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 boundaries that inhibit our chances of success and well being. I I think that's. 
that's going to be a different uh, if you partner upon kettle of fish altogether. Is another conversation for another time, perhaps. Absolutely, and but I think you bring up fantastic points, and I like what you brought up about the American dream as well. Because I I forgot who was it that said it that in. in you know, in 2022, it's much uh, easier to achieve the American dream in Scandinavia than it is in America. <laughs> All right, before we wrap this conversation up, Eugene, would you have a, some final thoughts or a final message for us? Well, your questions and uh, yeah, the conversation we've been having here, Dashan, I think that's just given me pause, uh, a lot of food for thought, right? And paused on initial assumptions that I had and just going beyond emotions. I think success failures. Uh, the products of interactions between ourselves and our environment. Uh, we don't succeed on our own, just on our own merits. But I think the same applies for failures as well, right? So we don't be too hard on yourself as you head into the new year and set out to accomplish what you intend uh, to do. Uh, take stock of what the temperature in the water is like and you know, wish you all the very best in what it is that you hope to accomplish in 2023. Thank you so much for joining me again today and Happy New Year. My pleasure, Dashman. That was Dr. Eugene T, Associate Professor in Psychology. If you missed any part of this conversation or would like to listen to other episodes, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. You just have to search Today I Learned Podcasts. I'm Dashran Johan, and this has been Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.